This episode of The Outcast is brought to you by IMDb and their new podcast, Movies That Changed My Life. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And today, the first episode of season two, I am completely thrilled. And what a way to kick it off. Today, I'm talking to the co-creator and executive producer of Pose, Stephen Canals, and two of the lead performers, MJ Rodriguez and Billy Porter. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Hi. I'm absolutely thrilled to talk to you guys because Pose has been a landmark show and it is ending this season. It is ending a couple of days after this podcast drops. So, um, Stephen, why don't I start with you? I know you've told the story a bajillion times, but how did Pose come about? Um, well, the short version is 2004. I was an undergrad student at Binghamton University and I had a professor who introduced me to the ballroom community and screened Paris is Burning for me. And I I was born and raised in the Bronx. I lived in Harlem for a bit. Harlem is where my parents are from. And at the age of 23, 22, 23, I was introduced to this community that I never knew existed. Um, and so I can very vividly recall because at that time I was I thought I was just going to be a filmmaker I had no desire to be a screenwriter um I remember thinking wow that would make a really great television show can't wait to see that one day cut to 10 years later uh after a year or excuse me after a decade of working in higher education as a college administrator uh I find myself in Los Angeles studying uh working on an MFA in screenwriting at UCLA and I was taking a pilot writing class and I thought how has no one told that story yet you know it's been 10 years and no one's done it that's interesting and so I went off and I wrote that pilot and then two and a half years of in and out of rooms pitching it until I met Ryan Murphy who invested you know the time the energy the money and said let's make that it's a tough, I mean, it's so wonderful, but it's like, I can't imagine that, that, that everyone was clawing down your door trying to make this initially. They were not, to be clear. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it was two and a half years, 166 meetings being told some version of, we love your voice. We think the characters are really great. We think that the world is rich. What else have you got? Right. You know, it right, was Because they didn't want to touch it. They, it no. was ty- you know, they were terrified. They, they were very scared. It was, it was too black. It was too brown. It was too queer. It was too trans. It was a period piece. Um, I had only been staffed on one television show up until that point. And so I think everyone felt like, I don't know who the audience is for a show like this. I don't know where a show like this live and right. lives. And the big gotcha question consistently was, who are you supposed to get to play these characters? Right. Um, and it wasn't until that 167th meeting where I met... Uh, Sherry Marsh, who's my executive producer, who said, this is more than just a sample. This is a television show. We're going to get this sold. You're going to make this show. And two months after meeting her, almost to the date, she managed to get me into a room with Ryan Murphy, who said, let's make it. That's amazing. And, and you had been writing, I mean, you had been in the business and writing 
for a few years then. Yeah, but like I said, I think that the industry is – there's this term that I hate – uh, which is when you're starting out, they call you a, a baby writer, you know. And the truth <laughs> is, when you're looking at the hierarchy in television, you know, the entry level writing position is staff writer, and right. then there's eight other rungs before you finally get to creator slash executive producer. And so, the reality is that being that I was still a staff writer at that point when I was going out and pitching the show. You know, people just didn't want to invest in me because Hollywood's a risk-averse industry. And the reality is, are they really going to give this kid who just, you know, came out of a writer's room millions of dollars to go make a television show? Well, also making a television show that's very queer and very POC-centric. I mean, like, which are, you know, two kryptonite moments. Uh, at least at you know as five or six years ago, I mean, I know that like it's 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 warmed up a little now, but I think one of the reasons it has is because of Pose. Yeah, I mean, you, you what you a show like Pose, what it needs is a, a an advocate, and b it needs a disruptor, someone like a Ryan Murphy who is just going to say, this is an important show, and I know it's going to shake up the television landscape. This is a story that we need. Let's just go make it. You know, like, I think the reason why Ryan has the career that he has is because he's someone who's willing to take risks consistently. And it's the thing that I, when I wrote the first draft of Pose, I wasn't writing it thinking groundbreaking TV. I wasn't thinking that it was going to put an Emmy on Billy Porter's shelf. I wasn't thinking that it was going to lead to, you know, the most. It's a good side effect, though. (laughs) It's beautiful. But, you know, I I never thought like, oh, it's going to be historic before it ever comes out because it has not one but five trans women of color in series regular roles. None of that was the intention. At the time, it really was just, I'm part of two communities as a queer person of color, and I am not seeing them on television, and I'm tired of not seeing myself. My people deserve to be centered. That's all it was at base level. Everything else that has come out of it has just been extra. It's all been the cherry on top. And I think that you know, the, the lesson that I've taken out of working on this show and specifically being in such close proximity to Ryan is continue to be a risk taker, continue to take that leap, take chances, because I think ultimately it's like, if he had never been the person to say, let's invest in it, Pose would still likely be a script that's just sitting on the top shelf of my desk, frankly. Well, when you talk about taking risks, it's very funny. And I want to get to MJ and Billy because, you know, you're two performers who have taken enormous risks. I mean, I was doing my research on both of you and it's like your careers are just stunning. I mean, they're fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I mean, they are. It's, you know, MJ, let's start with you. I mean, I know the ballroom scene has a personal aspect for you because I read that you were kind of like into the ballroom scene when you were in your early teens. Yeah, I was very much involved in the ballroom scene when I was in my early teens. I walked my first ball um, by myself and I was chopped severely. <laughs> and it's kind of reminiscent of Blanca's moment when she walks down in first um, season. Um, yeah, it's just crazy how everything pans out when you get to finally get a, a moment to tell the story of what you've experienced and what you've taken part in for, you know, a good part of your life and a good portion. And also to be somebody who is striving to also get their craft to be seen, who is striving to be an artist and striving to be an actress. It was great. I want to take you back about uh, to the beginning and, and uh, tell me about the casting process, because I know that was a multi-month 
crazy process. Child, I did not know if I was going to get this part or not. I remember the first time I saw it on Breakdowns. It was on Telsey and Company's Breakdown. And I had been auditioning for Telsey and Company for years. And um, I saw this on their breakdown. And I looked at every single last character. I saw Lulu. I saw Candy. I saw Angel. I saw Electra. And then I saw Miss Blanca. And the the breakdown of her was nurturing, caring. She's not the the most like put together, but she's self she's self assured. Um, I'm not completely quoting it, but this is who Blanca was. And there was a piece of it in there, two pieces of the nurturing, and also not the girl who didn't have herself all the way put together. Like those pieces of me I related to. And I was just like, I need to play this because these are the only parts of me that I'd be able to get the world to see, but also for other girls out there who are dealing with the same exact things I'm dealing with. And it just so happens that I have been working in theater and working in acting for years. So I was just like, all right, well, I got this behind me. Let's, let's see how it's going to work. Um, then later on down the line, I auditioned for my first on tape uh, screening of it. That's how you say it. Oh my God, I'm like nervous saying it. And after that, didn't hear anything for about two weeks. So I was like, child, I don't have it. I'm giving up. I was in the middle of auditioning for my first Broadway show, like first Broadway show. And I was back and forth three years and not having work or four years of not having work talking to my mama and being like, mommy, this is not going to happen. I'm just going to go back and find a nine to five job and just live my little life and blend into the, the regular quote unquote normal society, which I knew I wasn't going to be able to do, able to do, but would try. And then out of nowhere, a second audition came, a second testing. I see Stephen Canals. I see Billy up in the audition room. I see Dominique Jackson, who I had just met about a week prior to that. And it just had all come together so beautifully. And um, at that moment, when I walked out, out of the room, never have I ever in a million years have I felt like, oh, my God, I think I got this job. <laughs> <laughs> that night, I get a call from Ryan Murphy. And it solidified everything. It solidified everything. He called me and said, because I think he could read on my face the worry and the want and the, the need to like really really play this part and he said don't worry you have the part don't worry it's yours what are you doing MJ and I said I'm listening to Rihanna's own thoughts right now um (laughs) 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 you know what to say after I got off that phone call I'm trying to make it short forgive me but we're along with it sorry Mm -hmm. y'all but um I got off that phone call and I just (laughs) went downstairs to my mama and my stepdad and I just screamed cried and was like finally it hit it hit. So, um, yeah, that's how it happened. And I'm so happy it happened that way. <laughs> I'm happy it happened. Listen, I'm going to give you a profound compliment. In season one, and I think this mirrors Blanca a bit. In season one, you know, I feel like the first few episodes, everyone was finding their footing. Everyone was kind of like coming together. By season three, you know, you are a force of, and so is Blanca, a force of nature. You like, you command the scene. And, and it's like, and I feel like that's the difference between just like, you know, being an actor and kind of like, and, and, and that added bit where you're just so confident and you know who this person is so much because you've spent so many hours and so many episodes and you just know, and I just feel that from you. And especially in season three, you just know who she is. I, you know, it's funny. I was the whole the whole season three, I was tell, I've been telling everyone like this is the first time I'm actually seeing Blanca. Like for the first and second season, 
I was too self-conscious, too nervous, too... You're so great. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a great, it's a great performance, but I just noticed this when I was watching season three. It was like, you're, you're like, okay, I feel complete mastery of craft oh, here. Mastery, I don't know. I mean, that's the <laughs> Well, mastery right of this character then. You, you're you totally... Got some dudes to pay, but you know... <laughs> Well, I got to talk to Billy right now because Billy, like, I'm, you know, because you can curse on this podcast. I fucking oh. love you. I fucking love you. <laughs> like, you. We're, 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 we're about the same age. We're a couple years apart, but we both came up basically, you know, I came out in like 91 or 92. So it was like basically, you know, Act Up was already like in full swing. They were telling us to wrap condoms on everything at all times, no matter, like, it was just, it was this... Very scary time, you know, I mean, you know, there was a Republican in the White House for year 11 or whatever it was. I mean, Clinton was not even there yet. You know, it must have been a very challenging time to start your career and to, to be an out game because I assume you were out at that time. I, I, I don't know this for a fact. Yeah, I mean, I was out in the way that you were out at that point. Um, you know, it was like, don't ask, don't tell before that <laughs> policy even sort of showed up. Right. Um, you know, there was a lot of um, your queerness will be your liability. So, you know, I went to drama school and, you know, got the gay scrubbed out of me so I could be butch and get work. And nobody cared anyway. Um, and nobody really... Um, you know, sort of took to that because it wasn't real. Right. Um, I had a I had an R&B record deal in the 90s, um, you know, that almost killed me emotionally. Um, you know, I was about to go under. I was just thinking about this this week because of my whole announcement and being on the Tamron Hall show and finally able to watch myself. And, you know, the journey from the day of the silencing. You know, right, back right. in 97, when I was about to go on the Rosie O'Donnell show and somebody from the record label literally said to me, don't speak. I mean, don't just try not to talk too much. Right. And wow. And, you know, to go from that to who you see today. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a journey. It just takes my breath away because... I know so many people that didn't make it. Yeah. You know, I know so many people that didn't have the opportunity to live long enough to experience this change, you know, to be able to walk through the doors that you kick down. You know, that doesn't happen very often. It's not lost on me. You know, that I'm a part of the generation that kicked the fucking door down. And now I get to, you know, it's just, it's very emotional for me. And I'm just really overwhelmed. You know, as you can hear, it's overwhelming sometimes because, uh, you know, pose and pray tell and this whole experience has taught me to dream the impossible. And I didn't even know I wasn't dreaming the impossible until this came along. I have to tell you, season three, episode four, Billy, like, destroyed me. 
Like that, just like that episode in particular absolutely destroyed me because you're talking about stuff that is like, I, I don't think I'd ever seen in that context. You're talking about, you know, a, a very particular uh, African-American community, a rural African-American community. You're talking about sexual abuse. You're talking about the closet and you're doing it in this very grounded, character-driven, authentic way. Um, you know, like that one episode, just like, tell me like what that took. Well, you know, the brilliance of our creators um, is that they're observant. You know, from the minute we showed up, there was an observing gaze over all of us, you know, that then informed how the characters developed over the three seasons. Um, back when, what's that Supreme Court? I can't even remember his name. Who? who oh, Obergefell? You know, no, the one who just... Not the new one, but the one before him, the molester. Oh, uh, the predator. Wait, Kavanaugh? Yes. But when Brett Kavanaugh was being going through all of that and they were sort of dragging that lady over the coals because she couldn't remember what color the sheets were. Dr. Ford. When when he was Dr. Ford, Kristen Balazzi Ford, when he was, you know, preying on her, it triggered me because you know, I am a survivor of sexual abuse at the hands of my stepfather. And so, you know, it was, I wrote a piece to just get the bile out of my system and I posted it on my socials and out.com picked it up. And within two hours, Ryan called me and said, I read your piece. Would you be open to telling that story through Pray Tell? I said, please. Please tell that story through Pray Tell. You know, then, you know, after, you know, or somewhere in season two, he said, what kind of, what, oh no, we were doing a, we were doing a talk together. And he said, what, what story would you like to see Pray Tell talk about? And I said, the relationship between the LGBTQ community and the black church, you know, because it's not all right and somebody needs to talk about it. And I've been waiting my whole life for somebody to do it. And the exact opposite has happened time and time and time again. You know, these preachers, these gospel musicians showing up in front at in Republican conventions talking about how they've been delivered from something. Ain't nothing to be delivered from. My humanity is not to be delivered. I am just as God made me, period. And if you were actually reading your Bible, and taking it in as opposed to weaponizing it for your own hate, we would be having a different discussion. So that's the discussion I'm trying to have. It was, it was, it's not about a disrespect for religion. It's not about a disrespect. I, it's I not didn't get that, that at all from the episode. That's not that, at all. I'm great. And that's the writers. And that was one of the things that I said. I was like, this is not about dragging religion. This is about holding religion accountable. Yeah. Just like America has the declaration and we don't need to hold America accountable, we need to hold all these Christians accountable for what they talking about in the Bible. Because I got one too. And it's high lit too. <laughs> you know, so like I am to, you know, I've been saying this. It's like if I don't ever do anything else in my life and I'm already doing other shit, it's lined up. But metaphorically, if I don't ever do anything else, I will have done and said everything I needed to say. 
Now it's time to tell a different story. Of course. That's yeah. the gift. That's the blessing of Pose, is that now we get to tell a different story. It's gorgeous. It's, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, Stephen, like when you guys were breaking season three, and you had an episode like episode four or episode three, the trunk, which I was like, oh my God, the trunk is back. Spoiler alert <laughs> for everybody. Like if you haven't watched season two, there's something like, because that was based on a true story. I knew that true story. Yeah. And they, 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 they were like, we're going to put him in a trunk. I'm like, I remember that. I didn't remember the name, but I remembered it. Um, you know, and then the trunk came back. The trunk, uh, for those of you who don't know, has a person in it who through, <laughs> through reasons that, that we go into uh, that, that Electra was really blameless for, uh, she has to uh, keep. Um, and then in season three, we revisit that trunk. Um, but when you, but the cool thing about that episode is you have these flashbacks and I see Electra and I see Blanca in these ways that I have not in the entire run of the series seen them. And it was amazing. Those, those insights were amazing. Like, how did you, did you always have those backstories for these characters? Some of it. I mean, you know, I think you always, in a writer's room, you want to keep things loose. Um, and so, you know, I don't know that we ever really thought deeply about where abundance started and where they came from until we started talking about that you know, that third episode. But what was critically important for us while telling that specific story was just finding the emotional connections present day to the past when it comes to the trunk itself. Yeah. You know, so we spent that episode in particular, some of the episodes of the third season, I think folks would be surprised how quickly the story sort of poured out of us. That was one where we took a lot of, we, there was a lot of time and consideration um, just because I think that the the narrative of a trunk and the body, like there are moments where like all of that is so heightened where it could sort of veer in the land of not feeling grounded and real. Right. Um, but the other thing, like I said, is for us, it's all, we always go back to theme. And what was important was just that thematically it all tracked, you know. So yeah. what was Electra's connection to that trunk back when she was a young woman and what's her relationship to it now present day. But it was, it's, there's a greater metaphor there and it's absolutely perfect. And the way, and the interactions between her and Blanca were like, Oh, I can see where they were at the pilot. I can like, I suddenly was like, Oh my God, I can see all of this now. This all makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it made sense before, but it was like even deeper and more enriching. And that takes a lot of skill to be able to like, kind of in seasons three, you know, like, by the way, it all fits. Watch this. And I, you know, it's kind of breathtaking from like an, a writing perspective, like what you guys have managed to achieve. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm proud of it. I think, you know, like I said, we spend, nothing is arbitrary, you know, like we spend a lot of time thinking about these characters and the story and really talking it out before making any choices on the page. And I think, you know, going back to something that Billy was saying about the fourth episode is that so much of our own personal experiences we wind up putting on the page. And so, and sometimes it's in places that you would never even expect unless we tell you, you know, but I think that 
um, there's so much overlap. You know, there's a lot of Ryan Murphy's experience in that fourth episode. I, like, as a young boy, like, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. So there was a lot of my personal experiences in that episode. There was a lot connected to the Vernon Praetel relationship. That's personal stuff of mine. You know, Janet Mock being a black trans woman, there's a lot of her experience that she's putting in the show, as well as Our Lady J as a trans woman. So, you know, it's like we're constantly sort of metaphorically excising all of our demons and, and like bleeding on the page, if you will, putting so much of our ourselves onto onto the story and, and into these characters' lives. And I think that's what like why it's so great. I mean basically that's kind of how you're supposed to do it. I mean, like, right. you know, when you, when you, when you learn right. how to like, make content. Know? Yeah. Like, well, not just that. It's, it's like, wait, not just your experience, but like what's in your heart, what you write, your demons, write these traumas, write these things that like affected you. And when you keep it in that authentic place and it's different, I know for writers than it is for, for performers, but you guys use that stuff too. It's not that different, you know, because as a writer now, you know, having been a writer for 20 years now, um, and I'm just sort of, you know, getting my shot in the mainstream as a writer, you know, it's because of being an actor and understanding how to reveal character through acting that I've been able to put it on the page, you know, and it felt like just a regular, you know, it felt like a seamless transition to me, you know, and one of the things that you know, one of the comments I always get on my writing is like, oh, it just feels like these characters are just talking to me. And it's like, well, that's because I have embodied everything. <laughs> right. You know, I've been blessed to have had the opportunity to embody characters and understand what that means to then, you know, as Stephen said, right. excise them, um, you know, on the page and in the experiences that we're writing about. Guess what, movie fans? IMDb now has a podcast, and it's called Movies That Changed My Life. It's a weekly series hosted by Ian DeBorha, where some of your favorite celebrities talk about the films that inspired them, influenced their work, and made them who they are today. Each week, you'll hear guests like Kelly Marie Tran talk about the animated Mulan, or Billy Porter on The Color Purple, or even Scott Aukerman on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and much, much more. Movies That Changed My Life is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories, while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is, it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization.
And MJ, I want to talk about actually something that's not pose related, uh, something that made me cry. I want to talk about the late show with James Corden and you and George Salazar. And I know that show, Little Shop, like by heart. I mean, I've known it, my, <laughs> but, but can you tell me what that was like, like being on that show and having that moment? Uh, it was um, it was pretty life changing because I had watched just like you, Little Shop of Horror, for all of my life. My mother had played it constantly, not to mention my mom's name is Audrey, so that was kind of crazy that I got to play Audrey a second time. Um, <laughs> no, but like I just the most important thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to break down the stereotype of what or what kind of woman should play. Um, Audrey and the stereotypes of women who have specific kind of looks like blonde hair and how a blonde woman is supposed to act and preconceived notions of how women are supposed to be perceived in the world and the blessing was that I was Afro-Latina and I was a trans woman that got to actually be in a space with other individuals who were queer in different parts of many different communities. It just was great. And um, having that moment on Corden's show was surreal, but prolific at the same time. I mean, not a trans woman has been able to do that. Not even to share a kiss on a, a national yeah. main way and I was glad that it was seen because I feel like so many trans women need to know and see how they can be loved and how they can be appreciated and also not that the trending topic is just like this is the trans woman playing a trans character instead you know MJ is playing this woman who has been through the gamut and every woman can relate to what Audrey has gone through. So um, I was really, really, really happy and, and very pleasantly surprised at the reception of it. Well, you bring up an interesting point. And, and I think this goes back to what Pose has done for not just trans visibility, but like just a cis white guy like me watching the show. Mm-hmm. This is not about trans people like it's about sex or it's about gender or it's about genitals or whatever. Pose is about tenderness I mean, it's about, about very, family. Yes, it's about it's about very dark themes, but it's the tone is one of joy, mm-hmm. and 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 celebration, and right. t- to tell the stories that don't have to necessarily do with sex, that don't have to necessarily do with genitals <laughs> or whatever, whatever the other stupid, you know. I think that's the one thing, David. Like, I feel like that's the one thing that I was blessed with being a part of this show with, as far as with the writers and everything, because. My main goal when I went in and when I was reading the script was to try to make Blanca as human as possible. And hopefully her story doesn't have to be just specifically centered around the ballroom scene because that's not just the only place that trans individuals thrive outside. And the best part, I suppose, was that it showed the dichotomy between the two. It showed how we go to a place that we find so comfortable, that we find so lifting, and also how we have to go outside of that place and still be rooted in ourselves, dealing with the craziness of the world and how the world sees us, especially as Afro-Latina, Latina or Black trans women. Like the world pushes this weight on us when we walk and we simply stand in our truth. And um, I just loved that I got to do that. And I'm, I'm the only reason why it happened is because Steven wrote it. Like, if this never reached Ryan, the show would have never happened. It would have never gotten the light that it needed to get. And I'm so honored. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like, I'm honored that he got the chance to do this because it gave us a chance 
who have been wanting this opportunity to be actresses and showcase our work to actually delve into a character to build it from ground up and show not only what we go through outside of the character, but what the character goes through in 1987. So yeah, it was lit. Well, I mean, you talk about the ballroom scenes. One of the last questions I want to ask you is like shooting those ballroom scenes, they are stunning. And it's like, you know, especially like, you know, in in the back half of season two, it's like, oh my God. Steven, what went into scripting, planning, and 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 MJ and Billy, what, what went into like shooting those scenes? They're so yeah, no, intricate. Yeah. Many long days. <laughs> long hours. Uh-huh. Long hours is what it took. And you're at that volume. You're a full volume for all your lives. You're like, you're like yelling yeah. into the microphone. That's a Yes, but I'm a He's singer. from the theater. He's from the theater. He's from the theater. <laughs> I am a singer. <laughs> I speak from my diaphragm. You know, I speak as if I'm singing. So it's all connected to the, you know, to like my training. But like, I didn't even really understand how hard it was until I wasn't at the mic. Right. And somebody else went to the mic. Jack Mizrahi went to the mic. Right. Yes. And he came down. He said, girl, <laughs> how do you do that all day? I was like, oh, right. Yeah, I'm I'm singing. Right. If you listen, if you go back and you listen to it, it's always on a pitch. Yeah. It's always as if I'm here and it's that's just like I've shot, you know, like it, I'm singing. <laughs> I'm literally singing, but I'm speaking. And that was how I was able to manipulate it. And the fact that the character is so broad, mm-hmm. you right. know, and Ryan Murphy made sure that um, he took the chains off of me. Right. You know, the first the first ball scene, you know, after having lived through 25 years in the business where everybody was telling me I was too much, too big, too gay, too black, too blah, 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 blah. You know, I get this TV gig and I'm like, well, of course they want me to do my television version. So I'm going to get in front of this mic and I'm going to do my pulled back you know, television version. And so I start with royalty. The very first line. The category is royalty. I hear from Video Village, cut! (laughs) Ryan comes in and comes up to the the, uh, dais and he's like, "Um, I need you to give me everything. I was like, he said, you don't have to worry about that shit no more. I need all of the things. He was already in the he was already talking in the in the ballroom uh vernacular at that point. He was right. like, I need all of the things. <laughs> I said, listen, Ryan, once you you know let the Kraken out, right. she don't go back in. He was like, release the Kraken, bitch. Action. And it was in that moment that the signature pray tell pulling the mic. Right after that, I put the microphone up. I said, bitch, y'all better get ready. And it, you know, and I laugh every time I see it because he freed me. Right. He took the shackles off of me that had been on for so many years, for so many decades. And I was and I was so grateful that I was able to go there so quickly. Can I jump in really quickly, though? Yes, yeah, yeah, please. Because I think, and I think this is the case with everybody, but with what Billy was just sharing, I think is really important, and it connects to the question you asked about the ballroom scenes, which is, 
the reason why Billy was encouraged by Ryan to go all the way there is because we know, we knew that we were juxtaposing that with those softer scenes that you see throughout the remainder of the season, right? Because right? we right. had already started breaking the, the narrative. So in that same episode where you've seen most of the time that you see Pray Tell in the pilot, he's really big, right? It's this largesse on, on a ballroom stage. But then if you go back to that pilot, there's that moment on the street where he talks to Blanca. There's that beautiful scene after she finds out that she's HIV positive where she goes to talk to him and he tells her, girl, it's time to go get another dream. So you can allow for someone like a Billy Porter to be as big as he wants to be on that stage because we know that in other scenes... He's going to give you all the heart, all the emotion. He's going to take you all the way there as a performer. So this wasn't... And I think that's the case with all of the actors, right? Look at someone like a Dominique. Look at what MJ Mm -hmm. was doing when they were walking those ballroom floors, right? Mm -hmm. All of that's heightened. All of that is seen as being like just so... You know, it, it, it veers into the place of looking like fantasy, even though it's all rooted in reality. But the reason you can allow them to go there as performers is because then you give them these really emotional scenes later on like MJ going in to talk to Helena to say, I want my son to have a shot. And when you juxtapose the two, you see the fullness of a life. You see the fullness of a journey. Right. You know? you it see, never comes across as one note. Right. You see human beings. And as a black queer man in show business who has been relegated to the Millennium Coon show for the majority of my career, the only thing I ever wanted was to be taken seriously as a human being. There is a world where you can be fabulous and serious simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And that is what Pose gave us, you know, I believe. Well, you guys are absolutely fantastic and I know we have to go, but real quick before we go, what do you guys have coming up? Well, <laughs> is that too, is that too long a question to end it on? No, 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 no. Uh, I got a great show coming up. It's, Just tell it. Tell it's what it on, is. It's going to be on Apple. I'm working with my, Ryan, uh, Maya Rudolph. And What's it called? It's called Loot, and I cannot wait to work with this woman. So yes, that's what's happening. That's fantastic, Billy. What you got? I am directing my first feature film um, this summer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, called What If. Um, for Orion Pictures. It's about a Black trans girl um, in high school. Um, You know, it's telling a different story. It's aspirational. She's just in high school. Everybody accepts her. She's trying to get a boyfriend and go to college. It's a rom-com in the old, you know, a John Hughes uh, genre. And that's amazing. I have new music coming out. Um, I signed a new record deal, so I have that coming out. And I have Cinderella. I have... Fairy Godmother and Cinderella in the, in early fall. Oh, that's so exciting. Steven, what you got? Sleep. Sleep is good. Um, <laughs> Sleep is underrated. He needs a break. Yeah, but you, you everybody can con- <laughs> like uh, follow your stuff on Twitters, right? Yes. 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 Well, more Instagram for me and Twitter, but I'm downsizing. It's like one thing at a time. <laughs> well, you guys are fantastic. This has been a huge highlight of 2021 for me right now. Um, talking to you guys, making authentic work, really appreciate it. And, you know, you've moved me, you've moved millions of people. Thank you so much, Stephen Canals, MJ Rodriguez, and Billy Porter. 
I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash The Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Alan Konigsberg, David Kittredge, and Ismail El-Sharif. Special thanks to Damian Navarro, Daniel Crook, Chris Goh, and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.